Hi, I'm Steph. And I'm Becky. We're both health at every size aligned eating disorder clinicians. And on this podcast, we have conversations surrounding diet culture, social justice, authenticity, and unlearning. While we're both therapists, we approach this podcast as human beings on our own journeys. So just a friendly reminder that this is not to be a substitute for professional mental health services. And on this season, we're going to be focusing on the process of unlearning. We understand that much of what we believe in has not been our choice. Unlearning is choosing to challenge beliefs and take in new information to find what truly aligns with our values. We hope you'll join us for season two on Donut Mind If We Do. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Donut Mind If We Do. It's Becky here, and I just wanted to go over something that Steph and I realized wasn't mentioned in the episode that we both felt was really important to talk about. So as you know, this episode is about the clothing industry clusterfuck that we all know it is. And at the beginning of the episode, I go over some history about the clothing industry, and I was talking about how interesting it was that certain things in that history timeline aligned with things like women's suffrage. And I mentioned that women got the right to vote in 1920, and something that can't be left out of that conversation is that there was still a lot of racism and oppression occurring. So black women really didn't get the right to vote until 1965. So that's 45 years of women's history where black women were unable to vote. And I think that's so important to add into this conversation because we know things like weight stigma, fat phobia, the BMI are all very racist and rooted in racism and oppression and marginalization. So that can't be left out of the conversation when we're talking about accessibility of clothing and so many of the other topics that we talk about, not only in this episode, but on our podcast. So we really hope you enjoy this episode and we hope it can help you when you're engaging in purchasing clothes and just engaging with the whole process. So without further ado, here's another episode of Donut Mind If We Do. Hey everybody, for this episode it will be just myself, Steph, and Becky, and we will be talking about unlearning the belief that clothing has the power to dictate your worthiness. So we're pretty excited about it. Yes! Becky's going to start us off here by sharing some really important history as a context for our conversation. Heck yeah. So I'm really passionate about learning the history of things like this and um, this is actually a group I do at work, which kind of sparks some of my passion for this topic. Obviously, living in the world did as well, but learning some of this history, I feel like at least for me, helps me to check some facts around uh, my own process of unlearning and being able to ground maybe when these experiences occur. So I thought maybe sharing this with you all could be a helpful foundation to the other conversations we're going to build off um, today. So... um. Looking back in time, the Industrial Revolution took place from 1760 to 1840, and this greatly impacted the textile and clothing industries. So before the Industrial Revolution occurred, people were often making their own clothing at home, and it was based out of necessity. And as you can imagine, you know, I'm I'm sure that the colors and the fit of the clothing was much, much different because when you're making it yourself, you're just doing what you need, what's comfortable, right? What fits your body, just so you can live, go out into the world and do your thing. So after the Industrial Revolution occurred and it shifted that industry quite a bit, people were actually shopping more for clothing um, in the name of fashion more than in the name of necessity, which is a really interesting shift. Um... 
when you think about it, because I think that that also perpetuates this narrative of like appearance and how people were showing mm. up and those expectations, um, most likely, especially around women. Um, and this also makes you think about in terms of like clothing sizes, how when you were always making clothes specifically for your body and then they are now being mass produced in a factory, that process is going to look a lot different because bodies are very different. We know body diversity exists. And back then they didn't really know that. So they went through a lot of years of trying to figure out how do we standardize clothing sizes? And something I do want to mention to kind of like, um, just kind of add to this conversation because I think this piece is really interesting. So when we're talking about bodies and worthiness, um, we know we talk a lot about unlearning things like weight and health being correlated, as well as like your body size and your worth not being correlated, all of that. So household scales became a thing around 1913 and women's suffrage, um, women got the right to vote in 1920. And I always like to point out how some of these diet culture fat phobic things kind of took place in history that kind of lined up with times when women were fighting for rights. Um, because we talked a lot about how diet culture is often a political sedative for women, um, causing them to be focused on how um, they show up in the world and what size their body is. Because obviously that's a great distraction. And if you're malnourished, the you're, fucking patriarchy. you're not, yeah, the patriarchy really banks on us being malnourished because then we're not going to have the brain space to speak up for what we believe in. So I just wanted to note that because that is kind of like in the middle of what I'm about to share. 1913 and 1920 um, was kind of that range of time where you saw the scale become a thing, which I, I can imagine made people more conscious. And those conversations are starting to happen around like weighing yourself at home, which wasn't something people were able to do before that. Um, so around 1940, um, the Department of Agriculture started to look at women's clothing sizes. Um, and I'm making an assumption here. I'm going to link the article I got some of this information from. It's actually a Time article. Um, but because of how it was impacting things like cotton and textile production and like the, the resources needed, the Department of Agriculture was like, hey, let's take a look at this. And they also mentioned in the article that before this, before 1940, <laughs> I literally wrote WTF, uh, size was based on your age. What? Like, how is that even a thing? I don't understand. And I guess like baby's clothing is based on age, isn't it? Like well, months or... Well, sure. But like, you're not a baby. Like, I feel like that's, I don't know. Well, and even that's inaccurate. Because yes. there is such variety. Like a nine-month-old wearing like a Even with babies, size diversity yeah. exists. But yes, to your yeah. point... Well, even like, you know, I see this with buying things for Kate. It, yeah. It's around her age. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it's just interesting that that was kind of like for all adults as well. Like that's such a bizarre thing. But again, like they're going off of what they knew at the time and doing the best they could. Right. So, and we have to remember, they do note this in the article and I have to keep this in mind. Like they didn't have things like computers and other things to calculate. Right. Um, you know, many different things when they would do research studies and things of that nature. And we also have to be aware of the people who were available for these research studies to help them standardize. And, a lot of times, too, um, at this time, especially 1940, they assumed that women knew how to sew, which I think also was assuming that if something didn't fit you right, you could alter it at home or, you know, make changes to it, which is a big assumption to make, which I think back then that was probably a skill that was much more popular for women yeah, to learn probably. in the home. And nowadays, I would say it's just not. No, I'd be at um, Shit Creek with no paddle. Heck no. I'd be wearing a robe. I don't even know. Um <laughs> And they noted that when the Department of Agriculture did this kind of study, um, it was mostly poor white women who participated because they really needed the money. 
And I really appreciated that they mentioned that because as we've talked about in past episodes, the the BMI standards are really based on white men in the 1800s. So they really, really um, even more, I would say, impacted and still do impact people of color and other marginalized bodies and communities um, when the study is only done on, you know, white people, thin white women, poor white women. So that was just an interesting kind of extra factoid. And this also often at the time, the sizing went on off of your bust size, which assumed that you had an hourglass figure, which again, Uh. patriarchy, just so many things wrong with that and really sad about that uh, because we know so many different types of bodies exist. Body diversity is such a beautiful part of, I think, humanness. Uh, but again, we're trying to put women in these boxes. Um, and even at the time, what they got out of that study was another arbitrary way to standardize women's clothing sizes. So in 1958, the National Bureau of Standards came back in again and said, hey, let's try to rework this. So they did put an effort. I will say there was efforts made here. Um, and again, they also determined that to be arbitrary and came back in 1983 and totally nixed it all. So now... In 2021, we are sitting in a place in history where store clothing sizes are based on the store's preference. So what that means is there is no standard. They can do whatever they want. And I think that's really, really important to drive that point home. Because when you go to the store and you are in that dressing room and you are vulnerable and you are putting on a pair of pants and they don't fit you, understanding that that store at any point can change the sizing and your body changing is totally normal and human and okay. There's nothing wrong with that either, but also understanding that the clothing industry is just totally a shit show. Like there's no rules and they can do whatever they want. And we live in a very fat phobic culture, right? With body hierarchy. So there's a lot of pieces to this that I'm sure we'll continue to talk about in this episode, but I just felt like kind of letting you guys know like where we're at currently and where we've been is helpful to understand how we can go on from here. Um, I think we have to know our history to know how we don't, we don't repeat it, of course, but also how we can continue to navigate in these scenarios, take care of ourselves, and just kind of unlearn and kind of break apart maybe the associations we've made around these things. Yeah, and I think it <clears throat> it's just so important because there is so much shame, I think, around clothing I'll, I'll speak as a woman yeah. um there is so much shame around clothing and really when I think about clothing and I don't know for those of you listening what your view is on clothing or what role clothing plays in your lives and body size plays into that I think ideally clothing would be something that meets a necessity mm-hmm. right yep. we unfortunately cannot parade around naked these days and also maybe even a form of expression and mm-hmm. creativity and expressing one's identity And I think that it's really wild to consider that Becky just covered, it sounded like a 150-year-ish period. Um, (laughs) We still are botching it. We're not getting it right. And for those of us who exist in smaller bodies, we don't even know the, the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The impact that Mm -hmm. it can have, not only to have clothing already be such a, a... source of I would say confusion and shame but then for someone who exists in a larger body or a plus size body as the clothing companies have called it to think about how that impacts your ability to both meet the need 
of dressing yourself and also maybe the want um, to express yourself creatively and to manifest your identity on the outside. Yeah, and I think you bring up a really good point of something we talked about before we recorded today about how it feels very intentional. I obviously don't talk to the people who make the sizes for stores. I think we know it was Abercrombie and Fitch, the CEO, um, within the last maybe five years came out and said he only wanted certain types of people to shop at his store. So he sized the clothing as such. So everything was kind of scaled smaller so that only smaller people could wear his clothing and advertise for him, basically. I felt that way about Hollister. I don't know if that was ever like a thing for Hollister, but I specifically remember Hollister clothes being so small. Yeah. And if you worked there, you were called a model. Like you weren't called an employee. You were called a Hollister model, I'm pretty sure, from people that I knew who worked there. So you just see these kind of, um, these structures that were built very specifically. And we talked before too, before we got on this uh, episode today, how how much language matters. And when you think about even that wording, it's really interesting. This person's representing what we want our brand to look like, what kind of bodies we want to wear our clothing. And when we think about things like fat phobia and the things that are assumed of people in fat bodies in our culture, we already know that it's assumed that they're lazy, um, they're unintelligent, they're unmotivated, all of those things. And so then when we don't see clothing available to them in, you know, mass production in stores where you can find like fashionable clothing to go to like interviews or to just show up in the world in a way to express themselves, right? Right. That becomes a luxury for them to be able to Mm -hmm. do that. And then it perpetuates those stereotypes. Yes. Of like, oh, they're frumpy or they're this. Well, of course, that's that's the clothing that they can access to clothe their body. Right. So I think it's it's just, it's interesting when you see these structures all kind of lining up to fit this specific narrative that being fat is inherently shameful and bad and you should want to be thinner. And in the process of seeking thinness, you then become, you know, politically sedated and aren't able to fight for things or speak up for yourself. It's it's just interesting when you kind of go down that spiral a little bit, how you see how these things are really interconnected. Um, yeah, and when you said um, over, about, like, availability of resources, mm-hmm. especially for someone who lives in a larger body or a plus-size body, I think that I've been made more aware, I would say in the past six months, around really considering my my role in, in buying and... Um, thrifting and how that impacts the earth right so like really thinking through clothing purchases in a way that's ethical right and as someone who lives in a straight size body it's a lot easier for me to find companies that are more ethically aligned with what I'm hoping to do versus people who don't have the same access to that and I think that while I'm all on board for this conversation to continue around what does it look like to be essentially a good steward of your time here yeah. on earth with what you buy, I also think we need to have a very real, honest conversation about how there's privilege even in that, you know? So I don't know if we want to maybe touch on that more, but... Absolutely. And when you just said that, I had this bell go off in my head because it feels similar to the clean eating conversation. and like organic food right and I'm not saying that they're the same I'm not saying they're interchangeable but it's interesting because I think we've talked about this a lot like we can point fingers at the person who's engaging in a way that might be like kind of different from these things um and again those values are different and the two things I just mentioned but I think we can point fingers at the people but I think what we really have to point fingers at and work to change together is the systems that are 
oppressing the people, yes. right? And that feminist theory that we've mentioned before. Um, and I, I think this conversation for me, you know, it brings up some guilt because I am someone who, you know, especially in the pandemic and through my life over the last few years, my body has changed a lot. Mm-hmm. And I would even say that I'm in, I would say like, I would say like I'm in a mid-size to plus size body. I don't even know what label to put on it. My body has changed a lot and I struggle to find clothing in stores that I would say is clothing I want to wear out, that I want to use to express myself, mm-hmm. that I really enjoy. I don't really see a lot of that clothing in my size in stores. Um, and so I have bought from Sheen, Shine, Sheen. I don't even know how to say it. We'll just go with I think I've heard Sheen. Yeah, you guys know what I'm talking about. S-H-E-I-N. Uh, or, You're right. S-H-E-I-N. Yep, yep. But every time I tell someone that I bought an item of clothing that they compliment me on, because I think like the clothing that I bought from them is, are things I really enjoy that really clothes my body mm-hmm. as if it's a canvas and it's things that make me feel like I'm expressing myself. Oh my gosh, I love that that skirt or that shirt. I'm like, yeah, unfortunately it's from Sheen. Um, and I feel like I have to say that because I feel badly that I bought there from them and supported them. And I also acknowledge that I really wanted to be able to express myself with clothing and I just don't know where to do that. I feel kind of like, especially as a, you know, a 29 year old, mm-hmm. like, and Forever 21 in our mall took the plus size section out. Fuck that Forever 21. Right? And I mean, not that they're much better. They're fast fashion as well. But again, it's like, even in our mall, that's massive. We live near a huge, I'm pretty sure like second largest in the country yeah. next to Mall of America. Barely any places to shop. And when you live in like a plus to larger size body. Um which I think, again, is just kind of this cultural wanting to push that people it's out of the picture. It's intentional. Yeah. It's 100% yeah. intentional. Let's push them out, but then blame them, right? It's kind of the same idea, like, when people see someone in a larger body going to the gym and then they're making fun of them. It's like, you're telling them that they should want to do this, and then when they do it, they still can't do anything right. Right. Like, what are we looking for? What is the goal of this? Um, yeah, and I think that privilege piece has to be part of the conversation, and acknowledging that like ethically sourced brands that are un- amazing in their small businesses and are creating ethically sourced clothing for people of you know a wide variety of sizes people can't always afford the clothing because it's a small business and they have to charge a lot more money for right. each piece of clothing right so yeah wow <laughs> there's so much to this conversation i feel like there is and i think you know there's also, we mentioned, um, you alluded to this with your body changing, but I think a lot of times, and we see this where we work, people who are in eating disorder recovery also in, experience a body that can drastically change. Yes. And so I think that sentiment would be shared by them as well, um, just yeah. in terms of you know, it's really hard if your body is consistently changing for whatever reason to be able to afford some clothing items that yes, maybe are more ethically grounded. Yeah. Um, But again, going back to privilege, a lot of people don't have that kind of money to invest in. Yeah. Um, So just wanted to share that point too, that for anyone who's in recovery specifically from an eating disorder, a lot of these body change conversations would resonate for, with that experience too. Yeah, and I'm really thankful that you mentioned that because I think our clients bring up that a lot, um, especially when we talk about this specific topic in our program. And their their frustrations are really valid. And I also think thinking about like people who say like, okay, well, you can go online thrifting, like Depop, Poshmark, all those places. And I think those are great options because you can type in your, your size or whatever. Or like if you're in recovery, a loved one can help you with that. But I think what it comes down to is that 
people who are in, I'll say, like larger bodies can't just go to the store and grab something off the rack. They can't have that same experience with their friends if everyone's going shopping socially, that connection of like, oh, we're all going to go to the mall together and go shopping. That person will be left out of that equation, Mm -hmm. right? And then again, that money piece too for someone in recovery who might have to consistently continue to buy new clothing, they're not going to want to invest and then have to donate or resell or figure it out, right? Um, I had a friend reach out to me actually, cause I talk a lot about this on social media and she was like, Hey, my body has changed and I'm really struggling with this idea that like, now I'm going to have to buy all new clothes and I can't afford to. Mm. And I was like, yeah. And, and she's like, it makes me want to change my body to fit in the clothes right, right. because that feels like an easier alternative. And so we really had an honest conversation about what it would mean to change your body to fit in the clothes. What, what measures would you have to take to do so? Yeah. You know, but like, I get it. I get it. Like the money piece is also a really like important conversation. It is. Um, And I think that what you just said reminded me kind of along the lines of the podcast name, the episode name, I should say. (laughs) It's not me. It's you. Um, I think something that I'm actively trying to unlearn is this idea that I have to dress for other people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's the obvious, um, especially growing up in, like, what I would say was a very heteronormative culture, kind of dressing for the male gaze. But even as I shift out of that mentality, there is still this, I would say, pressure or temptation to continue to dress for other people, whether that's other people's approval or other people's admiration or attention Um, And I think something that I'm actively trying to unlearn is that exact thing that I, I want to be in a place where I dress for me, Yeah. whether that's prioritizing comfort or it's prioritizing creative expression or it's prioritizing ethically based clothing. If I'm in a position to do so, I want to do those things because it aligns with me, my values and my wants versus feeling this pressure to show up in a certain space in a certain way to accommodate to other people's expectations. Yeah. And I think that's such a powerful conversation. There's so many layers to that. I think about, I guess what came to my brain also is like professionalism, the idea of professionalism and like, what does it mean to dress professionally? And like, Mm -hmm. what's different in terms of men and men and women, if we're thinking of the gender binary that we were all raised in, Mm -hmm. in terms of dressing quote unquote professionally, because I think the expectation, especially on like, you know, women in that, in those spaces is to not express yourself. You know, it's to kind of like take away anything that is special about you and dress Mm -hmm. very like neutral and cover up and, you know, you don't want to distract anyone in the office. Right. Um, Right. So don't be you. Don't show up as you authentically. Right. Um, Which I think is just kind of a lot of what our culture asks of us, like conform. Yes. Conform, conform, Um, which could probably be a whole other conversation. But I think also like addressing for other people and I think maybe we touched on this ahead of time before we hopped on the episode today but even thinking about being a kid and uh, trying on clothes in the dressing room and having like a person that you're with whether it be a parent or a friend being like "Mm, that doesn't really suit you Mm -hmm. and those comments while well intended being so like a dagger of like maybe it was something you really liked and and how that can kind of change the trajectory of how you then might dress yourself yeah um or how you might feel comfortable wearing a certain item of clothing, even if it is comfortable, but maybe it shows off a part of your body that we're told we should hide or something like that. Yes. You know? Definitely. I just, I think that 
when you mentioned being a younger kid, I just think of like my middle school self and how she so often felt this need to simply dress based on, and I'm sure this is probably most middle schoolers Mm -hmm. experience because you are in a stage of development where belonging is so important. Integral. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But just thinking through like fashion trends and how, as my middle school self, I definitely only sought to dress myself in ways that I knew would be socially, um, you know, appropriate or socially esteemed. And it does make me wonder, like, if I were to go back, which I cannot, but if I could go back (laughs) to, like, 13-year-old Steph and really remove this uh, need of hers to fit this certain mold, what would she dress like? And why would she dress like that? And almost, you know, giving ourselves permission as adults to have that same sense of creativity and playfulness. But again, it goes back to the privilege of being able to, you know, so it's, it's hard. There's so many pieces. And yeah, I I feel a lot of sadness for like younger, younger people, especially like I think when we were growing up, I just, as you were talking, I had flashbacks. Um, I, I've been six feet tall since I was like 13. Mm -hmm. Um, And as a woman in our culture, that's not very normal, normative, I should say. Um, and I had to shop in like the women's section of Kohl's, like I could never fit into the junior section. And so I would often wear clothing that was very boxy and like motherly and women, you know, older, Mm -hmm. like at that age. So I remember there was a few times that I wore something kind of more fun and different and I automatically was made fun of. And it's just so interesting to think about how being different is so stifled in our culture. Mm -hmm. And so that self-expression and that canvas, um, piece of like, you know, clothing, I think is even seen like as shameful and just thinking about that experience of not being able to shop in like the quote unquote juniors section when I don't know the names of clothing sections are very strange but it's just an interesting thing to think back on and how much I think I always took that very personally like going back to our kind of intention of this episode about like worth not correlating you know not correlating our worth with our clothing size how I think I always felt like there was something wrong with me because I couldn't dress the same way my friends could mm. because they were all in a lot smaller bodies. They shopped at like limited two and I could never shop at limited two. I never once owned a piece of clothing from limited two and how that, like, I think in my own mind, whether it did or not, like separated me from them, Definitely. you know, that kind of like ostracizing feeling of like, well, I can't wear that clothing. And there was nothing wrong with me. There was something wrong with the system and the, the way that it all worked, but it always felt very personal, especially at that age. You don't know any different or how to, question that yeah you know um yeah it's interesting this just popped in my head the other day Kate wanted to wear pajamas to school and I've I've tried very hard for a lot of the reasons that we've already touched on in this conversation to just let Kate dress however she wants to dress and barring you know the elements like (laughs) snow and 90 degree days yeah and you know that kind of thing but she wanted to wear pajamas and I I I didn't think twice about it. I'm like, yeah, wear your freaking pajamas to school, you know? And she said that people made comments to her. No, no, no. I didn't gauge that it was anything mean per se. It was just yeah. more so like, why are you wearing pajamas? Yeah. It's not pajama day. There's like these like unspoken. And how she's six, yeah. you know? And already, yeah. and again, I don't think there was any like malicious no. banter around yeah. it. But just really interesting that um, she went to school in pants and a long sleeve shirt that happened to have Santa Claus on them. Um, (laughs) so (laughs) she got this like commentary around why are you wearing pajamas to school? And so even at that age, there is already a sense of this is what is normal and this is what is not normal. Yeah. 
Um, and I, I would like to think Kate's experience will be different than ours because we have come some yeah. way in terms of expression through clothing. Um, but clearly they're getting that message somehow. Yeah. Um, that there is a normal way to dress. Yeah. We had rules against wearing pajama pants in high school. You weren't allowed to. Like that was one of the dress that codes. That takes me to a whole other conversation. Yeah, a whole new like level. Spaghetti strap. Yeah. And I, yeah. Time. Maybe another episode of that. <laughs> yeah, just, it's it's very interesting um, to kind of dive into that and think about, like, little Kate who doesn't know anything about, you know, what other people think about mm-hmm. this or, you know, any of these mm-hmm. pieces, but knows that it was noticed that yes. she was different. Yeah. 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 Um. And I think something we also mentioned before we had this conversation too was kind of this war on women's stomachs. Um, and I think even how, like, I mean, I do love a good high-waisted jean, high-waisted leggings. I love it all. But I, I also, I'm curious, like, and if maybe you feel this way too, like, do I love it because it's comfortable? Which I think in a lot of cases it is really comfortable for me. But also do I love it because I was raised to believe that covering and sucking in my stomach are like the mm. way to be attractive or the way to feel accepted or, you know, a part of society I don't know yeah um no I think that that's it goes back to questioning like I don't know if we're going to talk about this at the end with some of our um suggestions but it goes back to the idea of like am I wearing this because it's comfortable am I wearing this because I like it or am I wearing it because this is what would make my body look quote unquote best according to our societal ideals around bodies which We've talked ad nauseum on this podcast about the fear of fatness. Yeah. And I do think, to your point, um, there is a lot of hate around women's stomachs if they appear to be anything other than the washboard flat that we've been communicated. Um, And as much as I would like to think we're moving away from that, I think that that needle's moving at a very dangerously slow pace. Yeah. And it's, it's really confusing to think about that because I do feel like a lot of our life we are conditioned to believe that, like, we should want to be mothers, um, which that's, again, in a whole other conversation for another time. But it's interesting because we know that becoming a mother in the way that you would, you know, give birth to a child biologically, right, or have a child biologically um, in your womb would change your body drastically and dramatically right in many many ways in terms of even like how it feels to live in your body how your body looks all of these things right so it's like we expect you to have a child and want to be a mother we also expect you to conform to the standard of what body should look like so it goes back to this narrative that like no one is okay no one can ever just be okay in our society because they wouldn't be good consumers anymore yes and that's what it i think so many of our podcasts come back to that exact point is it's about this idea of if we are not enough, or I should say, if we believe yes, that we yeah, are not yeah. enough, we will then put forth every effort possible, which for those of us have the resources to do so, typically involves spending money mm-hmm. to buy this program, this product, this thing. And never do we find in that space just a sense of contentment that we are already good, we are already okay, we are already yeah. enough. And then in terms of clothing, what we've already touched on is the very, very sad reality is that let's say you are someone who exists in a fat body and you've come to that place of like, no, fuck that. I am good and I don't need to change a single thing about myself. Then there's still that barrier of finding actual... 
access to the same clothing and the same um, resources that someone in a different body has. Um, but back to what we were saying, women's stomachs specifically, I feel like are such a a harmed um, part of us. And even as I say part of us, that irks me because yeah. I think it's in Hillary McBride's new book. I don't want to misquote or miss um, credit. But like even to to see our bodies as parts yeah. is so, um, what is the word I'm looking for? Objectifying. Mm-hmm. We are not objects. Yeah. We are bodies and our stomach is our body. And I, I almost want to remove entirely from my vernacular, yeah. like body parts. Yeah. Because it's, it is very objectifying to consider that I'm made of these parts of a body. I don't know why I'm just picturing Legos. But I feel like it's this idea, like, if there's this part that you can, like, just remove it. Yeah. Or you can just change it or you just cut it off, right? Yes. And it's like, no. 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 Why? No. You know? And, like, no shade to anyone who, you know, alters their body through, you know, cosmetic procedures or anything like that. But I think it's, I think a lot of this culture that we have is because we are taught to view ourselves as objects. Yeah. Um, and it's, like, the instrument, not an ornament quote from yes. Lexi and Lindsay Kite, um, More Than a Body is the book that they came out with. But... Their, their, like, famous quote is, you know, my body is an instrument, not an ornament. Like, a statement right. kind of trying to contradict that, counteract that. Um, yeah, which is really powerful to think about. Um, even with the spaghetti strap conversation. How we've always been told, like, we have to be really careful of how we're perceived. And that we are objects yeah. to be viewed. And it makes me think, I know... Uh, this is a little bit of a teaser because I think we'll have an episode on unlearning related to movement, but it makes me yeah. think about how when we use objectifying terms with our body, we start to see reasons for exercise and movement that are like very one part of your body focused. Yeah. with not the intention of celebrating said body, yeah. but with the intention of changing said body part. Yeah. And for what? And for what? Like really why? And like, I feel like when we ask our clients that question, we always, and I feel like, I don't know, um, maybe a little cocky saying this, but we always know it's not about their body. No. They want connection. They want to be accepted. They want to be loved. Right. Of course they do. Right. That's a very, yeah, we all do. But it's not about our fucking stomachs. Right. It's not. It's not about our stomachs. No. But it feels like it is because that's what we've always been told to like focus in on, right? Yes. Because if we just have that, that flat stomach, then, you know, we'll attract the men and we'll, we'll achieve this whatever, like we'll be chosen or we'll be, you know, deemed as pretty, quote unquote, whatever that means. Um, and for, for, for what? Why? Yeah. Which I think a lot of this unlearning season is asking that question, just asking why. Yeah. That one word question, I think, can really help us all, whether you're unlearning this topic or you're learning something we've already talked about or you're learning something that we won't even broach the subject of. I think that one word question, why, can lead you to so much growth. I mean, it's scary. It's not yeah. like a comfortable growth, yeah. but can lead to growth. Um, it's a posture of curiosity that I think um, we could all benefit from more of. Yeah, and as you said that, I just had, like, a thought, like, when do we stop asking that? Because mm-hmm. when you're a little kid, that's all you ask. Why? Why? Yeah, Why? Kate's doing that. And then yeah. at some point, you stop. You start to just accept everything that's around you, and maybe mm-hmm. that comes as part of conformity. Maybe it comes as part of everything else you're focusing on, relationships, wanting to be accepted by, a, you know, a romantic partner. I don't know, but, like, 
at some point, I would say for a vast majority of people, we stop asking. Yes. And we start accepting. And I think that that's really sad. And I think that almost sounds like it comes as part of that process where we start to separate from ourselves. Mm -hmm. Because when you're little, you're so authentic typically. Like you're just wearing your pajamas to school and you don't care. Right. And at some point you start to care. And there's that separation of self. Like I have to disconnect from myself and be what other people want from me. And so I feel like for a lot of people in this unlearning Mm -hmm. process, and I think maybe we've talked about this, but this is how I felt, is that returning to self and the returning to questioning. And it's just really interesting because I think there's so much of our lives we go through where we're not asking why. Maybe, it, again, it feels scary to ask why. We feel like we're going to lose things, and we might when we start to ask why. And I think maybe why can be a turnoff because more yeah. times than not, and we talked about this with Anna on our last mm-hmm. episode, but more times than not, you don't end up with this black and white answer. And yeah. we, most people, I won't speak for everybody, but most people find comfort in black and white. Yeah. You know, And I think from my experience, when I've asked why, I honestly, I just end up with more I don't knows. Yes. Um. Then I find answers, and it's, it that can be a really hard, uncomfortable, um, unfamiliar place to be in. Yeah. And I think for some of us, we maybe don't ask why because we would rather stay in this black or white than in the very vast nuance of gray. Yeah. You know. Yeah. It, it's it's kind of this calling to like surrender mm-hmm. um certainty, surrendering control that we actually don't have, right? But this um idea of that we have control. Yeah. And I think that we're really afraid to do that because mm-hmm. surrendering means that we're surrendering a lot of perceived control over so many aspects of being human. Absolutely. Um that we just want answers for, you know. Right. And I think that when we're looking if we, you know, returning to the topic of like clothing shopping per se, like a lot of us, I think, have gone through our lives making assumptions about our worth because we maybe didn't even know we could ask why. Mm-hmm. This is just how it is. It feels black and white. These pants are this size. I don't fit in them anymore, which means this about me. Yes. Right? It feels yes. black and white, but when we don't know why, we don't even know there is a why behind that um, because nobody talks about it, at least in my experience. Yeah, I had to I... seek this information out to figure out the history and like piece things together. Right. Um, it's not like common knowledge, I think. Yeah. I wonder if maybe now do we want to share some kind of like what to how do we navigate this going forward for people who are in a curious space of resonating with anything we've shared. Yeah, and I think like we talked about this before we came on today too, like um this idea that like while we we can't right now change it all, right? We no. can't just like uproot the whole clothing system and make it all better. So what we want to focus on is how can we take care of ourselves while responding to the things the way they are right now. Yeah, exactly. Um, and kind of doing what we can. Um, I'm, I'm curious if this would be a good time for me to share the analogy that I share with clients. I think so, yeah. So I think I, I really try to view clothing shopping, especially with our clients and eating disorder treatment, um, as a time to take your power back. And so I came up with this analogy I mean, again, it could have been something someone else has come up with in the past, but it's just something that I thought of one day and started using with clients. So this idea that when you go into try clothing on, it's like a job interview. So like you're the boss of your own body. You're the boss of your own company, quote unquote, you know, this kind of metaphor company that you run, which is your body and your self-expression. 
And when you go in to try the clothing on, you're hiring it for a specific job, which, you know, like, you know, Steph had mentioned, it could be comfort, it could be necessity, it could be self-expression, all those things, but you're hiring it for a specific job. And if the clothing doesn't meet the needs of that job, then it doesn't get the job, right? And if it does meet the need of that job, that's great. And I always have clients in group, like, do you have one job for your whole life? And they're like, no, of course not. So I think when we think about clothes no longer fitting us that we own, if we continue with this analogy of it being a job interview, once that piece of clothing has been hired on, quote unquote, to be a part of your, your, you know, your life, your company, whatever you want to call it, there comes a time where you might lay it off. It mm-hmm. might move on to a new job. It might get retired. And those things are okay. And I think when we can kind of come from that perspective, which is, you know, it's very abstract for some people. And I totally get that. I just really think in metaphors and analogies. So this really works for me to like really visualize this kind of like power shift and really acknowledging like this is a piece of fabric. Yeah. This is a piece of fabric. It can't hurt me. It's not saying anything about me. It's just fabric. And I know that that is so hard sometimes to reduce it to that because it feels way bigger. Mm -hmm. But if we can shift the power in that moment when we're so vulnerable, it can change that experience. Even if we leave the store with nothing, we still shifted that power dynamic and it can acknowledge like it's not about me. It has nothing to do with my worth. This isn't my fault right? This is the clothing industry. This is this piece of fabric. You know, this, this doesn't get the job today and that's okay. It can be frustrating and it can also be okay. Um, and I just really have enjoyed kind of working with that, even on my, you know, for myself, because I think it, it just transforms your ability to, I guess, do self-care and have self-compassion mm-hmm. and kind of just call it the bullshit yeah. of that experience really. Um, yeah. And I will add one thing, Becky, that you actually shared with me, um, that has helped me a lot and changed my, my, um, relationship with clothing is, especially if I'm trying on something new that I've bought to try it on Mm. facing away from the mirror, um, which just helps me personally to get more in touch with comfort. Yeah. Like does this without looking at my body, without looking at my reflection in the mirror, as I put on these clothes, do I feel comfortable? Do I feel like me? Um, and then kind of going from there, but at least starting with facing away from the mirror, because for me, it helps me prioritize, okay, yeah. comfort is really important to me in part because you know, I have to be very attentive, as does Becky, to the people that we see every day. I can't be as attentive to them and their needs if I'm feeling uncomfortable in what I'm wearing, physically yeah. uncomfortable. And so comfort for me is a very big deal. Um, and I just don't want to be distracted by feeling like my jeans are right in that part of the stomach. that They're just, slicing those yeah, organs. it doesn't feel good. I don't mm-hmm. want to be preoccupied with that. So anyways, I do think that one kind of tangible... I guess skill we can call it has been helpful for me to step away from really trying to appease other people in my life by yeah. what I'm wearing versus like, no, I'm wearing this because it feels comfortable on my body today. Basically that quote, beauty is pain. Ugh. Yeah. It's terrible. So sad. It's so sad. It's so sad to think about that. But this idea like, yeah, it's okay that it's uncomfortable because you look good. Like, Ugh. yeah, no. I mean, again, if that's, if that's what you truly want and that's your values, that's, that's okay. You're allowed to have autonomy in that way. Of course. But I think, like, really at the end of the day, like, 
being comfortable, like that's how you're more present, like you're saying. Like it, yes. it lends to us being able to be present in our lives, which I think, you know, is such a valuable resource to be present and to be in our, I don't know, in the now experiencing time in our life. Um, yeah, and I appreciate that you share that because I think that's that's something that people can do like right away. You don't need to buy anything to do that. You don't need to change anything. You just yeah. need to turn around. Right? right. And like, I think we can all try to do that, even if it's like very tempting to want to look because uh, you can look after. Um, and something else I have clients do that I feel like is really helpful. And I, I think so Aerie, um in their dressing rooms typically has like post-its of different affirmations. So we have clients in our program make affirmations um, that they put on post-its and then carry those post-its in their pocket, their purse, a bag with them to the store and so then when you go into the dressing room you can put the post-its up on the mirror and you can leave one behind you can take them all back with you um but it just kind of enhances this idea that like you can have your own back in those moments Mm -hmm. you don't have to go in there all alone and like with your reflection and allowing the inner critic to just like attack in that moment you can go in really prepared um with this idea like i'm gonna help myself get through this and i'm gonna change this narrative which takes practice i think and it's really counter to probably the way we normally experience that. But, like, it's definitely possible. Um, yeah. The only thing I think I would add that's not related to clothing specifically, but um, self-compassion has just been a yeah. game changer for me in any and every area of my life. And I tell clients about this specific um, meditation all the time. But Insight Timer, which we can make sure is in the show notes, is free. Uh, especially, Well, if you don't pay for the membership, which I do not, it's free. And Kristen Neff has a five-minute self-compassion break meditation that is, like I said, five minutes. And I think if she does a really beautiful job of really um, helping someone, especially if self-compassion is new to you. Mm-hmm. She really scripts you and like guides you right through how to offer yourself self-compassion And I think if you're in a place where maybe you're really, you know, into what Becky and I are sharing and you're nodding your head and you're feeling everything, but you still feel very stuck for one reason or another, be it resources or motivation or whatever it might be, I just think you deserve compassion because this is, this is an area where I would say so many people experience I don't think suffering is too strong a word. A lot of shame shame and a lot of discomfort. And so if nothing else, I would just encourage you to to try out that self-compassion meditation and just remind yourself that you are not alone in the experience of this clothing clusterfuck that we have to participate in. The clothing clusterfuck. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So yeah, I just thought that might be another useful skill to use that again you could use for anything outside of clothing as well heck yeah and Kristen Neff is just queen she's, she's great with she's amazing and I, I guess I'm thinking as you were saying that as like kind of like a last note too because I could probably go on for days about self-compassion with you I'm sure we could but um I feel like self-compassion is uh, I'm going to use the word that we I figured out today antithesis the antithesis antithesis I'll say that like 25 times in a row <laughs> get it wrong uh but the antithesis to the culture that we live in. So like we live in a hustle culture. We live in a culture that encourages self-criticism in order to be motivated to change things, um, Mm. which goes to like changing your body, you know, just all that stuff. And self-compassion is saying like, Hey, 
you know, self-criticism is not a helpful motivator, but being kind to ourselves and the way we'd be kind to a friend is actually what's going to motivate us to move forward and like, you know, access the things we want to like, you know, I don't know if that's the right word, not access, but like change the things we can mm-hmm. accept the things that maybe we can't and be able to just be kind to ourselves in the process. Um, and so I think in this, especially in this realm, like that is so important because if you go into the dressing room or you go into this process with self-criticism, I imagine the automatic thought is going to be, I need to change my body. And with self-compassion, mm-hmm. it's like, I'm a human. This is a hard time like that I'm having. This is a difficult experience to like live in a culture that praises thinness at all costs, doesn't have accessible clothing for people of all sizes, right? Like being able to acknowledge that and be kind to yourself through that um, is a completely different narrative. Yeah, and I think, and this will, I hope, truly be my last comment. <laughs> but when you brought up Three the, hours self, later. the self-criticism <laughs> part, a lot of um, my work with clients around self-compassion is teaching them the difference between self-compassion and self-esteem. Yes. And yes, I'll make it yes. really quick because it could be a whole episode in that's and of a, itself. That's a favorite. That like, But the idea of self-esteem, which a lot of our elementary schools teach as a huge uh, value for students to learn, is you really are comparing. You're yes. either comparing yourself to other people or you're comparing yourself to the past self. It's a lot of comparison. Um, self-esteem is largely rooted in this notion that I can be better or do better. And so when we consider how self-esteem plays such a role in buying clothing, right? Because there is this notion of comparing yourself to past self or comparing yourself to, um, let's just say, some influencer on Instagram. Whereas self-compassion evens out the playing field and there is no sense of comparison. It's just we all are here. We're all human. We all suffer. We all want to be happy and be well. And that's it. So I will say I do think self-compassion is a much better path to peace and happiness, if that is a goal you have, than trying to build self-esteem, which is really contingent on other people um, being less than or better than you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, high self-esteem is a very, um, I don't know, I just picture someone trying to go up the down escalator. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it doesn't work. It's not a helpful, like... It's so contingent. Yes. Yeah. Versus self-compassion, which is just an inherent um, an inherent gift that you yeah. you can access. That, like, it, no matter what, like, your body can change all through time, and your self-compassion and the way you treat yourself doesn't have to. Yeah. But self-esteem might feel like it would need to shift based on, like, expectations and all these other things we've talked about. Thanks for listening to another episode of Don't Mind If We Do. If you want to follow along and find out when our next episodes are going to be coming out, who our guests will be, and usually some pretty cute cat pictures, you can follow us over on Instagram at Don't Mind If We Do underscore pod. You can also follow us wherever you listen to podcasts to get notified when our newest episodes release. We really appreciate all of your support and look forward to sharing another episode very soon.